Okay, so this is our reading group on Simon Don's individuation in light of notions of form and information. Um, we're starting on the part on collective individuation, which in the translation is just listed as chapter three, but it's actually a separate part in the French. So we're starting from page 327 of the translation. So last time we looked at the last couple sections on psychical individuation, and we saw a, a dense couple sections. That, so there was a lot going on. I won't go through everything that we that we talked about. But there's this idea of the psychical world, which he, he sort of introduces, but then qualifies. And he says that we should instead talk about uh, the trans-individual reality uh, or trans-individual universe rather than a psychological world. The psychological or the, the psychical exists at the limit between the vital and the physical world. So the vital as the interiority of the organism and the physical world as the uh, exteriority. Um, and then the psychological or the psychical would appear at the limit between the two. It would um, sort of be the, the boundary between interiority and exteriority. So in contrast to the physical world and the biological world, the, there isn't a, a psychological world, properly speaking, because in the case of the psychological reality, it's dependent on the individuals in a way that is not the case for biological reality and um, physical reality. There's only such a thing as culture, for example, insofar as individuals um, constantly reproduce it and, and sustain it. Um, so like a, an artifact of some kind is only something that has a certain meaning insofar as it's treated as having a meaning uh, in a particular group of people. So that was the this idea of the psychological world that is not actually a psychological world. This sort of leads him into the question of what the trans-individual reality consists in uh, or what relation the individual has to trans-individual reality. And he, he looks at these two opposed um, explanations or, or uh, interpretations of trans-individual reality, which are the imminent and the transcendent interpretations. Uh, so on the one hand, the trans-individual reality is treated as something that is internal to the individual. The individual has something within them that surpasses them as an individual. Uh, and, or on the other hand, there's the transcendent um, interpretation in which the trans-individual would correspond to something outside of the individual, um, a, a divinity of some kind. And uh, so he, he he talks about, well, he, he, he gives the example of um, Nietzsche's Zarathustra to, uh, to talk about the imminent interpretation of the trans-individual. So for for Zarathustra, there's this sort of pantheistic identification with the world through this uh, trans-individual within uh, within Zarathustra. He uh, he cites some passages from, I think those are from Augustine, if I remember correctly, uh, this, this idea of God as being what is uh, exterior and superior to, to the human being, but also at the same time, what is most interior to the human being. So we, we find the divine uh, not just outside of us, but also within us. God is sort of internal to us in even more than we are to ourselves. Uh, and so there's this, uh, he even uses the term dialectical here again, as he has in the last couple sections to describe this relationship of interiority and exteriority. And um, there's this sort of dialectical relationship because ultimately the trans-individual reality 
can't be identified as either imminent or transcendent. It's it's both or neither. Um, it it's it's what's most interior to the individual, insofar as that interior is not part of the individual. So it's something that it goes beyond the individual, but is within the individual. Uh, and and so for Simon Don, it's uh, the the trans individual has to do with the remnant of the pre-individual reality that remains within the individual. So in the process of individuation, there is the individuation process doesn't complete itself. It doesn't um, arrive at something that would be completely individual, individuated and would not have any pre-individual left in it. There's always potentials that remain in, in the individual. There's these uh, potentials for future transformations and for further individuation to occur. Yeah, there's so much in this in this bit. I don't want to spend too much time going over it, but there's he gives these three different figures of human relationship to the trans individual uh, in the form of spirituality. So he talks about the sage, uh, the hero, and the saint as three different paths to seek the trans individual um, that humans can can follow. And uh, and so these these three figures uh, each. Uh, realize the trans individual in some way um, in a different domain, either in the domain of representation for the sage, uh, of action for the hero, and of uh, affectivity for the saint. And uh, there's, of course, like mixed cases, uh, like the martyr is a, a hero and a saint at the same time, and, and so on. And then he he talks about, he, he gives a criticism of pantheism, which I think is, is quite interesting in that he describes it as not avoiding the problems of uh, a personalistic conception of the trans individual. Um, so he, one of the sort of motivations that tends to lead different people in different traditions to adopt a pantheistic, motiv- um, a pantheistic system is trying to avoid anthropomorphism. Uh, so it's this feeling that personalistic conceptions of God are um, sort of reducing God to human dimensions. And this idea that um, we have to conceive of God as identical with the universe so that we don't Sort of reduce him or it to human scale, uh, and then Simondon argues that uh, even pantheism is still a sort of anthropomorphism because we're treating the trans individual reality as something individuated, and it's this assumption that the trans individual reality is individuated that constitutes the the main error of anthropomorphism, rather than specifically uh, attributing human qualities to. The trans individual, um, and so pantheism still still maintains that error. And then he goes on to yeah, there's that bit about temptation, which uh, is also very interesting. But I won't I won't go into that too much. But then he goes on in the next section to talk about the the cogito argument and how it presupposes something like memory or the the persistence of the self through time. So when you when you form the thought that if I'm if I doubt then I have to exist that thought uh, becomes um, something in the past becomes an object of thought from from being a, a doubting doubt it becomes a, a doubted doubt it's something it's an object that we can uh, put it itself into doubt uh, in a second moment of the cogito and so in order to form the, th- the the next step of the argument and say that you know what am I who doubts uh, and and you know derive the idea that I am the thinking thing, the race cogitants, in order to form that step, you need to have 
persistence of that thinking or of that doubting operation uh, through time. You have to identify the current doubting with the past doubting, and you have to um, say that they, they belong to the same thing, the same race. And, and so memory is, uh, and the relationship to time becomes an essential component of individuation uh, in the, psycho the psychical sphere um, in this section. And again, I won't go into a lot of the details of that, but he argues that the present is corresponds to the individual within the individual, um, so within the psychical individual, the present is what's most properly speaking individual. And then the past serves as sort of the symbol, the other side, uh, the corresponding half um, of the reality that is associated with the individual. So or it serves as the media um, surrounding the individual. And the past and the future both play the, this role of the milieu to the present um, as the individual within the individual. So I think I'll stop there uh, for um, the recap. But again, there's a lot in, in those last couple sections that is worth going over carefully because, um, yeah, they're, they're pretty dense. Okay, so let's start on today's section. So I'll start reading and uh, I guess we'll alternate since it's only the, the two of us that are on the mic today. Uh, chapter three, collective individuation and the foundations of the trans individual. Section one, the individual and the social group. Uh, sorry, the individual and the social group individuation, subsection one, social time and individual time. Such a view of individual reality seeking to clarify the problems that psychology is tasked with, resolve, with resolving would nevertheless make it impossible to arrive at a clear representation of the rapport of the individual to society. Society encounters the individual being and is encountered by it in the present. But this present is not the same as what could be called at the limit, the individual present or the somatopsychic present. The social rapport is indeed to the present from the point of view of each individual. But society encountered in this rapport itself possesses its equivalent of substantiality, its presence as a correlation between past and future. Society becomes an affirmation of permanence is still a mode of becoming for permanence is the stability of a becoming that has a temporal dimension. The individual encounters in society a specific demand of the future and a conservation of the past. The future of the individual in society is a reticulated future conditioned according to points of contact with a structure quite analogous to that of the individual past. Engagement in society for the individual directs it toward the fact of being this or that. Becoming is no longer effectuated, as in the non-social individual envisioned by hypothesis, from the future toward the present. It is effectuated in the inverse direction starting from the present. The individual finds himself proposing goals and roles to choose. He must tend toward these roles, toward types, toward images to be guided by structures that he endeavors to realize by coordinating with them and by accomplishing them. Society facing the individual being presents a network of states and of roles through which individual behavior must pass. What is most important for society is the individual past because the agreement of the individual and the social is formed by the coincidence of two reticulations. The individual is forced to project his future through the social network that is already there. To socialize, the individual must pass. To be integrated is to coincide according to a reticulation and not according to this force that is imminent to the future of the somatopsychic being. The individual draws on tendencies from the past from the social past in an impetus toward a specific action rather than a veritable remembrance. He draws from the social past that which would be associated with the dynamism of his future, 
and not with the reticulation of his individual past. The report to the social requires that between the individual soul and the social contact, a sort of reversal, a sort of substitution is established. Sociality requires presence, but a presence in reverse. The social soul and the individual soul operate in inverse directions and individuate opposite from each other, from one another. This is why the individual can appear to himself as fleeing into the social and confirming himself in opposition to the social. The social thus appears as a reality that is quite different from the milieu with respect to the individual. We can speak of the social milieu only imprecisely and by expanding its meaning. The social could be a milieu if the individuated being were a simple result accomplished once and for all, i.e. if he did not continue to live by transforming. The social milieu exists as such only to the extent that it is not grasped as a reciprocal social. Such a situation only corresponds to that of children or the sick. It is not that of the integrated adult. The integrated adult relative to the social is an equally social being to the extent that he possesses an actual active consciousness, i.e. to the extent that he extends and perpetuates the movement of individuation that has given birth to him, instead of merely resulting from this individuation. Society does not really emerge from the mutual presence of several individuals, but it is, it is also not a substantial reality that should be superposed on individual beings and conceived as independent of them. It is the operation and the condition of operation through which is uh, through which is created a mode of presence more complex than the presence of the individuated being alone. Right, yeah, so um, Angus has put in the chat here, it seems like he's saying that the social past becomes the individual future. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Um, he, he's, he says that the two individuations of the social soul and the individual soul are, um, uh, they, they proceed in opposite directions. Um, so there's, um, in, I didn't mention in my um, summary of our, our last week's reading, but there, there's discussion of um, uh, the, the relation of, um, of the present and the, the future, as well as uh, between the present and the past. Um, so the future and the past sort of coincide in some sense um, uh, and corresponds to the body um, uh, as opposed to the present, which corresponds to the mind. Um, and um, in social reality, we have this opposite um, relationship so that um, the, um, the individual um, so, sort of sees themselves as, um, as uh, fleeing themselves into the social. So um, entering into social uh, interaction and uh, relationships um, is uh, has the form of uh, fleeing from oneself uh, and and sort of um, sort of uh, leaving leaving oneself behind in a sense and yeah it's definitely not um, a stretch to try to compare this to Heidegger um, and this notion of authenticity um, as uh, being in some sense opposed to um, social relationships uh, um, in, in the sense of uh, fallenness and uh, as opposed to the everyday in general. Um, yeah, so the, the question here, or, or one of the questions that Simon Dome brings up is whether we can uh, depict the social as a milieu in which the individual would would live um, 
and he he says not really um we can't exactly um depict the social as a, a milieu in which the individual lives um we have to look at uh it, it would only be possible to um to make that assimilation of the social to a milieu if the individual was individual individuated once and for all um and then uh the milieu would be what's left behind of the uh the pre-individual reality um aside from the individual and that and that would be the social milieu but because uh we have to understand the individual as something that continues to undergo individuation uh including in the social world uh we we can't um we can't treat the social as a milieu in which the individual lives we have to um we have to come up with um a sort of construction in a, a more complicated way that that will account for individuation at the social level or the collective level as as he's going to specify um in following sections uh yeah and and so angus has, has also posted um that there's uh Sort of a connection back to the discussion of parasitism uh, from in in uh, the section on vital individuation um and um yeah so he he talks about how um um he talks about how in the case of parasitism uh the there's this sort of degeneration of the individual individuality of the parasite um uh and you can see this with a lot of like lampreys for example that have um like sort of a, a minimal digestive system because they just um uh absorb nutrition from their host uh um and um he he talks about how uh the both the host and the parasite um lose some of their individuality uh they they have like a lower degree of individuation um in the process of uh uh of parasitism um but at the same time the the parasite and the host don't form like a a joint individual individual it's not like um the two together add up to one individual um so there there's like a an absolute loss of individuality in that case um and so here when we talk about the social as something that is external to um to the individual um this is like maybe another reason why we we can't describe the social as a milieu for the individual because then the two um the social the, the individual and the associated social milieu would form a whole together um that would correspond to the complete reality um, but that is not the case. There is this, um, insofar as the social is lived in this mode of being a, um, a sort of flight from oneself or um, uh, as something external to oneself, um, there's a, a loss of individuality um, on the part of the individual. Um, so yeah, we can we can definitely tie this back in with the, the uh, discussion of parasitism. Uh, okay, so let's go on to the next um, subsection. This this uh, chapter has a lot of small subsections, so we can probably read um, each one separately 
uh, just in one go, I think. Okay, I can read this one. <clears throat> uh, subsection two, interiority groups and exteriority groups. The relation of an individuated being to other individuated beings can form either analogically the past and future of each coinciding with the past and future of the others or non-analogically the future of each individuated being finding within the ensemble of the other beings, not subjects, but a reticular structure through which it must pass. The first case is what American researchers call the in-group. The second case is what they call the out-group. However, there is no out-group that does not suppose an, sorry, there's no in-group that does not suppose an out-group. The social is formed by the mediation between the individual being and the outgroup through the intermediary of the in-group. It is useless to proceed like Bergson by opposing an open group and a closed group. Up close, the social is open. From afar, it is closed. The social operation is situated at the limit between the in-group and the outgroup, rather than at the limit between the individual and the group. The individual's body proper extends up to the limits of the in-group. Just as there is a corporeal schema, there is a social schema that extends the limits of the ego up to the boundary between the in-group and the out-group. In a certain sense, oh, sorry. In a certain sense, the open group, in-group, can be considered as the social body of the subject. The social personality extends up to the limits of this group. Belief as a mode of belonging to a group defines the expansion of the personality up to the limits of the in-group. Such a group can indeed, indeed can be characterized by the community of implicit and explicit beliefs in all the members of the group. In certain cases, it can come about that the open group is significantly reduced around an atypical subject to the point that the social expansion of the personality is null, and that consequently every group is an outgroup. This is what occurs in cases of delinquency, mental alienation, or in quote-unquote deviance within a social group. It can also come about through an immense effort of expansion of the personality that every group, even those that normally seem to be outgroups, is accepted by the subject as an in-group. Charity is the force of expansion of the personality that does not wish to recognize any limit to the in-group and considers it as coextensive with the whole of humanity or even with all of creation. For St. Francis of Assisi, not only men, but the animals themselves belong to the in-group, the interiority group. Similarly, Christ did not recognize enemies. He had an attitude of interiority even toward those who struck him. Between these two extremes that absolutely reduce or infinitely expand the boundaries with the interiority group, there is the status of contemporary life, i.e. everyday social life, which situates the limit between the interiority group and the exteriority group at a certain distance from the individual. This limit is defined by a second zone of presence attached to the presence of the individual. The integration of the individual to the social is formed by the creation of a functional analogy between the operation that defines individual presence and the operation that defines social presence. The individual must find a social individuation that overlaps his personal individuation. His rapport to the in-group and his rapport to the out-group are like the future and past respectively. The in-group is the source of virtualities, of tensions, just like the individual future. It is a reservoir of presence because it precedes the individual in the encounter of the exteriority group. It represses the exteriority group. Through belief, belonging, 
belonging to the interiority group is defined as an unstructured tendency that is comparable to the future for the individual. It is conflated with the individual future, but it also assumes the individual's past, where the individual is given an or origin in this interiority group, whether it be real or mythical. It is of this group and for this group. Future and past are simplified, led to a state of elementary purity. Um, one uh, translation point um, before we get into interpretation here, uh, the last bit uh, where he says it is of the group and for this group, uh, it should be he is of this group and for this group. So it, it refers back to the individual. Uh, the individual is of this group and for this group. Um, yeah, so let's, sorry, let me just scroll up again. So yeah, we have this um, introduction of, of this opposition between two notions of group um, and um, he he uh, is going to uh, say this more explicitly in later sections, but these are not two different kinds of group. It's not that there are some groups that are interiority groups and some groups that are exteriority groups. Um, it's that uh, the group is um, uh, has the aspect has these two aspects to it. Um, there's the the group insofar as um, um, the group insofar as it has this um, analogical structure. So the the individuals within the group um, they um, they are related to each other in um, this sort of intimate way. There's this um, um, the past and future of each member uh, coincides with the past and future of the others. Um, so there's this sort of uh, reservoir of potentials that uh, they all share. Um, so this is the case of the interiority group. Uh, and then on the other hand, there's the exteriority group. Uh, this is the group insofar as um, each individual um, uh, is is sort of related uh, in an external manner to the others. Um, so this he he states this a little bit obscurely, um, but he says um, the the future of each individual being uh, finding in the ensemble of the other beings not subjects but a particular structure through which it must pass. Um, so in the exteriority group, the the um, the uh, the exterior, um, sorry, in the exteriority group, each individual um, uh, finds the, the other individuals of the group um, forming this sort of social network um, uh, that you have to relate to, um, but not, um, not the reservoir potentials that we have in the case of the interiority group. Um, and the the difference um, maybe will be clearer as we go along, but uh, the in group has to do with um, uh, a new uh, a new process of individuation, so that uh, there's an actual formation of a collective uh, in that sense. Whereas the out group is uh, a relationship between already individuated beings, uh, and it doesn't uh, bring about a new individuation. Um, and we can we can think of this. Uh, some of these examples, I think, help to um, 
explain how we, we uh, how we can understand these in-group and out-group or or interiority group and exteriority group uh, notions. Um, so in the case of um, what he calls here um, delinquency uh, or um, mental alienation or uh, deviance uh, in quotes, um, these are cases where the individual um, is is sort of up against the rest of the world on their own. They they don't have um, something like uh, an in group um, that that surrounds them and that they form a part of. Uh, and then the converse case is the case of um, Saint Francis of Assisi, who uh, treats even uh, animals as part of his in group. He uh, he takes. Uh, all of creation to be part of that in-group. Um, uh, but the more general case is, is the one in which we have um, some uh, part of social reality is part of the in-group, is part of the people that we belong to, um, and then some other part of social reality is treated as the out-group, um, is, is something external um, and separate. Uh, and um, there's a sort of, um, uh, in the sense, in the sense, in the same way that there is um, a body schema, there's like a lived, uh, uh, a lived body um, uh, for the individual. There's a, a social schema, um, so the the personality of the individual expands to um, cover the whole in group, uh, and and you can see this with um, something like um, people's identification with a sports team, for example, like when you're watching your favorite team, you you sort of feel uh, as personal um, uh, losses or gains, whatever happens in the game. So like when your team wins, you feel like you're, you've won something. And then when the team loses, you, you've lost something. Um, uh, and so you, you, you treat the, the team as like an extension of yourself. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then we, there's the, the, the in-group acts as this sort of reservoir of potentials for, um, for the individual. So uh, there's, um, uh, the individual, lives or experiences the in-group as something that provides for um, a future that that offers possibilities and and um, uh, the the potential for future um, transformation but the, the in-group also has this past um, aspect to it uh, so there's this like mythical origin um, which uh, is a, a sort of representation of this in-group um, so this is often the case in the, uh, when we talk about um, uh, uh, nationality or ethnicity, where you have this um, sort of mythical uh, representation of um, a common origin as being what explains the the belonging of people to one um, in group as opposed to everyone else who is an outsider. Uh, so then, there's these future and past um, elements or aspects to the, the in-group. Um, 
Right, and then Angus, yeah, this is a good question. Um, so Angus has posted a, a question here in the chat um, uh, saying that, so talking about how in the ex exteriority and interiority groups are inseparable, so um, every group has, has these two aspects to it. Um, uh, but if we, um, if we sort of map these exteriority and interiority groups onto the collective and the inter-individual from uh, earlier in the text, then there seems to be a sort of inconsistency because um, if every group is an interiority group and has an exteriority group, um, then how is it the case that um, the collective is something contingent rather than uh, a feature of psychical life in general? Um, yeah, so that's that's a good point. Um, hmm, I think I think we can. Um, so I think when he talks about exteriority and interiority groups, he's using these in in relative terms. So every uh, every interior is interior relative to an exterior, and um, uh, and vice versa. Every exterior is is exterior relative to an interior. Um, uh, whereas when he's talking about um, the collective and the interindividual, when he makes that distinction between the the social the inter-individual and the collective, he's um, he's setting up um, an absolute distinction between um, different cases so that uh, when he talks about um, the collective as being something uh, sort of contingent and, and rare, um, that is... Um, um, that's a sort of representation of uh, maybe one of these threshold effects that he talks about in, in various places in, in this book. So um, there's only um, uh, the interiority group only sort of passes this threshold of uh, forming a collective at a, on, on rare occasions, um, whereas the sort of everyday form of an interiority group is um, is not a collective in the proper sense of the term. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm not explaining that very well, but um, it, it would be sort of treating, treating um, on the one hand, we have like a, a scale uh, between an interiority and exteriority. Uh, and then these terms of the collective um, and the uh, inter-individual would be um, sort of two uh, points on that scale, and um, there would be some uh, instances where um, an, an, a group would sort of uh, surpass the threshold of uh, forming a collective, and then other instances where it would not. Uh, but it's still, uh, it still has both the interiority and the exteriority aspects. That makes sense. I, I like that reading, but I'm still, I still think like there's maybe an inconsistency in the text because later on, you know, he talks about the correspondence between the trans individual and the, the interiority group. Um, and it, it seems like on the one hand, he's saying that the trans individual is only related to the collective, I guess, except for an anxiety. And on the other hand, that every interiority group has an element of the trans individual. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. He um, so 
when he talks about the trans individual, um, he talks about it in, in terms of uh, like in the previous um, sections from from the the last bit on psychical individuation. He talks about um, the trans individual in relation to solitude and um, as this rare sort of encounter. Um, um, but there's also so we have to I think. Um, have, we have to see the trans individual um, from sort of two different sides. Um, um, I think there's the trans individual as this actual um, experience, um, or um, uh, the French term is épreuve, um, a trial, or something like that. Um, this trial that you go through. Um, so there's this uh, the trans individual as it's actually sort of um, presented to the subject. Uh, but then there's also the trans individual as sort of the underlying reality um, of the of the social of um, of this uh, of the collective, I should say. Um, there's um, so in the case of um, yeah, your your sports team or um, any other in group that you want to pick, you you can, uh, as the theorist looking at that example from the outside, you can see uh, a trans individual reality underlying the formation of this in group. Um, but the uh, the subject within that that in group doesn't uh, have this actual experience of the trans individual. So it's um, uh, yeah, I think we have to distinguish between these two sides of the trans individual as either uh, an actual experience that the subject undergoes or as uh, an underlying reality um, be behind or beneath um, the the reality of uh, an in-group. So maybe only the trans individual experience leads to the collective. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, so we only it's only in the case where you undergo this um, experience of the, the trans individual uh, like Zarathustra on the mountain um, and, and you undergo this trial of solitude. Only in that case do you um, form a collective in the proper sense of the term. Uh, whereas in other cases, you, you have these, the formation of an in-group, um, but uh, the trans individual reality uh, still underlies that that in group, but it's not something that um, is apparent or um, that uh, is an object of experience of the um, of the members of that collective of that group. I should say, but yeah, that's a that's a uh, a really good point um, because uh, Simon doesn't um, sort of lay this out for us and, and we have to reconstruct a little bit to um to account for the different things that he says here i think this is the case for a lot of what he says in this part of the book in um the psychical individuation and the collective individuation he he sort of each section is sort of laid out separately and we have to sort of piece together how they how they're supposed to work uh in co in connection with each other um, okay, so let's go on to the next subsection, which is another short one. So I'll read um, subsection three. Social reality as a system of relations. 
Thus, it is difficult to consider the social and the individual as clashing directly in a relation of the individual to society. This confrontation corresponds only to an extreme theoretical case to which certain lived pathological situations approach. The social substantializes into society for the delinquent or the alienated and perhaps for the child, but the veritable social is not substantial, for the social is not a term of, of relation. It is a system of relations, a system that includes a relation and sustains it. The individual only relates with the social through the social. The interiority group mediates the relation between the individual and the social. The group interiority is a certain dimension of the individual personality, not a relation to a distinct term of the individual. It is a zone of participation around the individual. Social life is a relation between the milieu of participation and the milieu of non-participation. Psychologism is insufficient for representing social life insofar as it supposes that the intergroup relations can be considered as an extension of the individual's relations to the interiority group. By partially exteriorizing the relations of the individual to the interiority group, then by partially interiorizing the relations of exteriority groups to the interiority group, one can manage in an illusory manner to identify two types of relation, but this identification misrecognizes the proper nature of the social relation. Hence, it misrecognizes the boundary of relational activity between the interiority group and the exteriority group. Sociologism also misrecognizes the characteristic relation of social life in the same way by substantializing the social based on exteriority instead of rec recognizing the relational character of social activity. However, this is not, there is not the psychological and the social, but there is the human which at the extreme limit and in rare situations can split into the psychological and the sociological. Both psychology and sociology are two viewpoints that fabricate their own object based on interiority and exteriority. A psychological approach to the social is formed by the intermediary of small groups. Nevertheless, this manner of approaching the social based on the psychological forces one to load the psychological with something of the social. This is the affective stability of the American psycho psychosociologists, i.e the character of the individual being that is already social or pre-social. In the same way, adaptability and the capacity for acculturation are pre-social aspects of the being. The individual being is, that is seen according to instances that overflow his individual existence. Similarly, the sociological attitude includes contents of the pre-individual in the social that will allow for individual reality to be recovered by reconstituting it. To this extent, we understand why problems like those concerning the study of labor are invalidated by the opposition between psychologism and sociologism. The human relations that characterize labor, or at the very least are introduced by labor, can be reduced neither to the play of sociological substantialism nor to an interpsychological schema. They are situated at the boundary of the interiority group and the exteriority group. However, envisioned as interpsychological relations, the human relations of labor are assimilated to the satisfaction of a certain number of needs, the list of which could be drawn up based on an inspection of the individual being by considering it before any social integration, as if there were a pure and complete individual before any possible integration. Labor is consequently considered as the satisfaction of an individual need, as relative to an essence of man, a collective essence, but one that defines man as individual, as a being made of soul and body something also found in the notion of manual labor and of intellectual labor and with a hierarchical distinction between these two levels of labor. Based on sociologism, on the contrary, labor is envisioned as an aspect of the exploitation of nature by men in society, and it is understood through the political-economic relation. 
Labor then is substantialized as an exchange value in a social system within which the individual disappears. The notion of class is founded on the fact that the group is always considered as an exteriority group. The interiority of one's own class is no longer that of a social body coextensive with the limits of the personality, for class is no longer eccentric relative to the individual. One's class is conceived as one's own class based on conflict with the adverse class. It is through the return of becoming conscious that one's class is conceived as one's own. Becoming conscious is relative, is secondary relative to this first opposition. There is no longer a structure of successive circles, but a structure of conflict with a front line. All right, so here we have, um, again, this is a, a standard move for him. We have this dual criticism of two opposed positions. So uh, we have psychologism and sociologism, as he calls them, uh, as these two opposed positions that would um, assimilate social reality either to the individual or, uh, on the other hand, assimilate the individual to social reality. Um, so in the case of psychologism, where um, you you treat the you extend the individual to cover the whole uh, of the interiority group, um, and then at the same time you um, you interiorize the relations of the exteriority group onto the interiority group. So you you treat everything as like um, uh, an interiority group. Both the individual is, is assimilated to the interiority group and the social reality as a whole is, is assimilated to the exterior to the interiority group. Um, uh, and then the uh, converse error is sociologism, which um, uh, takes the the social um, or the exteriority group to be the the reality and then tries to sort of reconstitute an individual out of this um, and in each case um, for Simon Don this is um, sort of splitting the, the individual so in uh, in the normal case you have um, uh, a sort of unitary human reality which is only uh, uh, in rare circumstances, split into a psychological and a social level. Uh, and psychologism and sociologism sort of um, take these extreme cases to be the, the underlying condition um, as opposed to the, the um, more normal case of the intermediate form, which is what Simon Don starts from. Um, and then there's... Um, so he goes on to uh, bring up the particular case of um, the sociology or the, the psychology of labor. Um, and so you have, uh, you have industrial psychology um, and you have, um, when he talks about sociologism here, he seems to be talking specifically about Marxism, um, um, which would be a, a sociological approach to, to labor. Um, so these are two opposed uh, ways of talking about labor. And um, on the one hand, so in industrial psychology or in uh, a psychology of labor, you would, you would take the individual as something given uh, in advance. So the individual has certain needs um, and uh, desires. Um, 
and uh, then the laboring is supposed to um, fulfill some of those needs. Uh, so you appropriate products of nature um, through labor and you transform them and you make them fulfill your needs. Uh, so the needs are given first uh, outside of any social relation and then the laboring is supposed to fulfill those needs. Um, so that's the, the psychologistic approach to uh, to the, the labor process. Um, and then the sociological approach, um, which he seems to identify with Marxism here, um, it, it takes the um, it takes the uh, labor process to be um, a, a relationship between the human being and nature as such. Um, so it's a human assimilation of nature or human um, control over nature or something along those lines. Uh, and then uh, in connection with this notion of labor, we have a, a representation of class. Uh, and so the classes are, um, are groups insofar as they're uh, related to the labor process. And uh, this, uh, this notion of, of class is an objective notion of class, so it has to do with um, it has to do with the social reality, uh, and then only secondarily there's something like uh, uh, taking consciousness. So um, it's only once the class already exists that something like um, uh, the class becoming conscious of itself can happen, uh, and and the the uh, members of that class come to experience themselves as belonging to that class. Um, uh, so this is the the opposite approach to the the uh, compared to the psychology of work or psychology of labor um, uh, approach. So instead instead of having needs and uh, desires appearing uh, outside of society and and then being re being realized through labor, we instead have labor. First, and uh, the um, uh, consciousness of the individuals is determined by their position in relation to labor, and uh, and he points out that that this um, sociological representation uh, has a different, um, you could even say, a different topological structure compared to um, the representation in terms of in and out groups. So the the uh, the representation in terms of in and out groups um, has a has a structure of concentric circles. So you have the individual and then um, an interiority group surrounding that individual, um, and then um, successive layers of of groups uh, uh, around around that individual that are more and more exterior. Uh, whereas in the case of um, uh, in the case of the sociological representation, we have um, social realities depicted as a conflict that has a front line. Um, so it's, it's a conflict between, um, in principle, two classes, but um, in, in effect, more, more than two classes, but uh, different social groups that are um, in conflict with each other and then only secondarily come to have something like an interiority. Um, they're, they're, class consciousness is something that happens uh, as an effect of the conflict rather than the other way around.
Okay, so let's go on to the next subsection and see how he um, develops this, uh, this criticism of these two opposed notions of uh, psychologism and sociologism. Uh, I think this is another short one. Uh, uh, it's a little bit longer. Maybe we can read like a page or so and then stop uh, if you want to go ahead, Angus. Okay, yeah. Uh, subsection four, insufficiency of the notion of the essence of man and of anthropology. However, it can be wondered whether an anthropology would be capable of giving a unitary vision of man that can serve as a principle for this study of social relation. But an anthropology does not include this relational duality contained in a unity that characterizes this rapport. It is not based on an essence that one can indicate what man is for every anthropology will be forced to substantialize either the individual or the social to give an essence of man. By itself, the notion of anthropology already includes the implicit affirmation of the specificity of man separate from the Bible. Nevertheless, it is indeed certain that one cannot make man emerge from the vital if one deducts man from the vital. But the vital is the vital that includes man, not the vital without man. It is the vital up to man and including man. There is the whole vital, which includes man. The anthropological point of view would thus suppose a preliminary abstraction, similar to the abstraction one encounters in the subdivisions into individual and social and the principle of these further abstractions. Anthropology cannot be the principle of the study of man. On the contrary, human relational activities like that like the one that constitutes labor, can be taken as the principle of an anthropology to be developed. The being as relation is what is first and what must be taken as principle. The human is social, psychosocial, psychical, and somatic, without any of these aspects being able to be considered as fundamental, while the others would be judged as ancillary. In particular, labor cannot be defined solely as a certain rapport of man to nature. There is a labor that is not referred to nature. For example, the labor accomplished on man itself, a surgeon labors. The exploitation of nature by associated men is a particular case of the relational activity that constitutes labor. Labor can be grasped in its essence as a particular case only if this essence extracts its particularity from the whole spectrum of possible labor activities. A particular case cannot be taken as a foundation, even if it is encountered very frequently. Labor is a certain rapport between the interiority group and the exteriority group, just like war, propaganda, and commerce. Each group with respect to others can be considered as an individual to a certain extent, but the error of traditional psychosociological conceptions consists in taking the group as a gathering of individuals in the manner in which there are gatherings of individuals in the sciences, i.e. the domains of the biological sciences. In fact, the interiority group in every group relative to itself exists to the extent that it is an interiority group is formed by the superposition of individual personalities, not by their agglomeration. The agglomeration, whether organized or, inorg or, whether organized or inorganic, would presuppose a viewpoint at the level of somatic realities, not at the level of the somatis of somatopsychic ensembles. Right. So he, in the last section, he opposes um, 
psychologism and sociologism as two um, opposed errors. Uh, and then he says we need to start from uh, human reality instead of uh, psych the psychological or the sociological, which uh, would sort of lead us to think that we um, we need uh, an anthropology as our foundation. We need uh, some sort of um, notion of the essence of man or of the human as um, as our our fundamental notion uh, from which we can derive something like a, a psychology and a sociology. Um, but Simondon argues here that that is not the case. We don't start from something like an essence of man. Uh, we instead um, we instead have to start from the relational reality of the human being. So the human there's no human reality um, separate from uh, social relations that would be first and then uh, sort of uh, deriving uh, social relations as a, a separate uh, or secondary phenomenon. Um, so we we have all these different aspects of the human, the social, the psychosocial, the psychical, and the somatic. Um, they're all sort of um, coextensive. There's no priority between one uh, of these terms and the other. Uh, so we can't we can't define. Uh, an anthropology, an, an essence of the human, and then derive from it uh, the the sociological or the psychological. Uh, and then also, I would note here the, this bit where he says, every group relative to itself exists to the extent that it is an interiority group. Um, so it, if, uh, if there is a group um, uh, if there is a group that is aware of itself as group or that um, is sort of present to itself, uh, if it exists for itself, uh, then it's, uh, to that extent, it's an interiority group. Uh, so this is sort of one of the points that I would point to um, in connection with what I was saying earlier about how every group is both interiority and exteriority group at the same time. So it's only insofar as a group is uh, is an interiority group that it actually exists for itself as opposed to only existing uh, for the theorists um, looking at at the social reality from the outside. And then he um, he also specifies here or explains here that um, we the the error of um, taking. Uh, of the sort of more traditional conceptions of the the group is of taking the group as being composed of individuals that are sort of joined together. So you you start with individuals one, two, three, et cetera, and then you just sort of add them together and you get the group. Um, and um, he he argues here instead that the interiority group or or every group insofar as it is an interiority group uh, exists. Um, through something like uh, he calls here a superposition of their personalities. Um, so there's something like uh, a combination of personalities that the, he's going to talk later uh, more about this, um, this notion of combination of personalities, but um, there, there's something like a group personality, which is um, brought about by the, uh, the personalities of the members of the group. And it's not just 
the it's not just the case that the personalities um, are sort of added together or averaged or something like that. The the personalities of the individual members uh, are transformed by entering into the group. Uh, yeah, and that's interesting. Yeah, so Angus has um, posted a, um, a comment here about um, how uh, this T.S. Eliot, um, I'm assuming, um, uh, tradition and individual talent um, describes poetry as uh, in, in similar terms by saying that a new poet retroactively transforms all of poetry. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that, but that does seem to uh, fit with what Simon Dome is arguing here. Um, uh, yeah, we, we rely on you for uh, English poetry um, references, Angus. Um, yeah, so let's go on to the next bit of this su subsection here. Um, so I'll read the, the rest of the subsection. An interiority group does not have a structure that is more complex than a single person. Each individual personality is coextensive with what can be called the group personality, i.e. with the shared locus of individual personalities that constitute the group. However, this manner of envisioning the group is not a psychologism for two reasons. The first is that the word personality is not taken in a purely psychical sense, but in a really and unitarily psychosomatic sense, which includes tendencies, drives, beliefs, somatic attitudes, significations, and expressions. The second reason, which is more important and constitutes the foundation of the first, is that this overlapping of individual personalities in the interiority group plays a self-constitutive structural and functional role. This overlapping is an individuation, the resolution of a conflict, the assumption of conflictual tensions in an organic, structural, and functional stability. These are not structures of personalities that are pre previously defined, i.e. structures that are constituted and fully formed, before the moment when the interiority group is constituted and that come to be encountered and overlapped. The psychosocial personality is contemporaneous with the genesis of the group, which is an individuation. The group is not what contributes to the individual being a fully formed personality, like a cloak tailored in advance. The individual with an already constituted personality is not what is approached by other individuals with the same personality to constitute a group with them. It is necessary to start with the operation of group individuation within which the individual beings are both the milieu and the agents of a syncrystallization. The group is a syncrystallization of several individual beings, and it is the result of this syncrystallization that constitutes the group personality. The group personality is not introduced into individuals by the group since the individual must be present for this operation to occur. Furthermore, it is not just required that the group merely be present. The group must also be tensed and partially undetermined, like pre-individual being before individuation. An absolutely complete and perfect being cannot enter into a group. The individual must still be a bearer of tensions, tendencies, potentials, and reality. And this reality that it bears must be structurable and not yet structured for the interiority group to be possible. The interiority group emerges when the forces of the future harbored by several living individuals lead to a collective structuration. Participation and overlapping arise at this instant of group individuation and of the individuation of grouped individuals. The notion, the individuation that gives birth to the group is also an individuation of grouped individuals. Without emotion, without potential, and without preliminary tension, there can be no group individuation. A society of monads cannot exist. The contract does not found a group, no more than the statutory reality of an already existing group. Even in this borderline case where the already constituted group receives a new individual and incorporates it, 
the incorporation of the new is a new birth, individuation for this individual and also a rebirth for the group. A group that cannot be recreated by incorporating new members dissolves as an interiority group. The member of a group sustains the collective personality in the group by recruiting new beings and by introducing them into the group. The distinction between psycho groups and social groups is only valid as a manner of defining a certain polarity within groups. Every real group is simultaneously a psycho group and a socio group. The pure socio group would, would have no interiority and would be nothing but a social substance. A group is a psycho group as soon as it forms, but this momentum of the psycho group can only be perpetuated by incorporating, by giving birth to social group structures. Psycho groups and socio groups can only be distinguished abstractly. Um, right, yeah, so this notion of syncrystallization um, is something that he talked about way back uh, in the part on physical individuation, um, when he, he talked about how um, different substances that have the same crystalline structure can crystallize together. Um, or you can have, um, um, I don't know the, the crystallography well enough to give a, an example, but like one substance has a, a certain crystalline structure uh, and then substance B has the same crystalline structure, they can, um, you can uh, insert a crystal of substance B into um, um, uh, a medium of substance A, and the substance A will crystallize around that uh, substance B, and they form a, a joined crystal. Um, so that, that's same crystallization. Um, and so the, the idea here, uh, when he talks about sin crystallization is that there's a in the group insofar as it is a real group that has an interiority um, it um, it involves the individuals um, sort of reforming themselves and uh, reconstituting themselves as members of the group so that it, it's not just uh, taking already formed individuals and adding them together there's a real uh, transformation of those individuals uh, as members of the group. Uh, and so he's he's especially emphasizing here the interior aspect of the group, the interiority group um, aspect, as opposed to the exteriority group aspect. Um, and he, he's treating the interiority group as more fundamental and uh, the exteriority group as being a product of the interiority group. And he, he gives um, a temporal dimension to this distinction between interior and exteriority groups. Uh, because he he says that um, a group starts starts off as a as a an interiority group or a psycho group. Um, it uh, it it starts off as um, close to the pure state of being a a psycho group or um, an interiority group, and then as it uh, goes on through time, it um, the group develops. Uh, maybe more institutional structures um, and, uh, and tends to um, um, form something closer to a social group, uh, something more like an exteriority group in which the individual uh, is incorporated. Uh, and um, you can think of this in, in relation even to something like this server, right? Like when it's just a, a handful of people, you can sort of do things um, as you want. Uh, it, it has like a um, not a lot of structure to it, um, but as soon as you start having more people, you have to have moderators and uh, um, uh, you know different 
rules for different people and um, you have more structure to it as soon as you as as soon as the group um, expands beyond a certain point and uh, starts to have um, uh, starts to it starts to become more like an exteriority group that that um, individuals are incorporated into. Um, yeah, we can tie this back to um, Villas and Guattari as well. Um, uh, um, but uh, yeah, any any um, group that you belong to um, will tend over time to sort of take on more exteriority functions or or aspects um, uh, insofar as it like as long as it's not degenerating and sort of disappearing as a group, it will tend to uh, incorporate new uh, new members and um, take on different uh, institutional structures and, and become more of an exteriority group uh, as opposed to this pure interiority group. At the same time, it seems like he's suggesting that a uh, an interiority group itself needs to keep adding new members because I I think he's saying at least my, my reading of it is that he's uh, like that's the milieu into which the interiority group continues to individuate. Yeah, it seems like um, if you have an in, in interiority group that is not assimilating new members, that's not um, growing then it uh it will just end up decaying and and stop existing as a group it's only insofar as uh as the interiority group is capable of bringing in new members that have new potentialities and new um um uh tensions and and possibilities within them uh it's only in that case that the group uh continues to exist as a group um Otherwise, it, it just sort of dies out. And I think this is um, probably empirically true. Um, like um, any, any group, you know, this server, again, as an example, like if you, if you just have the same 10 people um, sort of meeting and, and discussing, it's hard to keep things going. Um, it's only as more people um, keep joining all the time that you, you have uh, um something like a uh, vitality to uh, to a server um and, and or any online community okay so let's go on to um subsection five uh if you'd like to read angus yeah uh this is a short one so you can you can read the whole thing okay uh subsection five notion of group individual it is therefore not appropriate to speak of the influence of the group on the individual in fact, the group is not formed by individuals joined together in a group due to certain bonds, but by grouped individuals, group individuals. Individuals are group individuals, just as the group is a group of individuals. It cannot be said that the group exerts an influence on individuals, for this action is contemporaneous with the life of individuals and is not independent from the life of individuals. The group is also not inter-individual reality, but the complement of individuation on a vaster scale, joining together a plurality of individuals. This type of reality cannot be thought if it is not acknowledged 
that there is a mutual convertibility of structures into operations and of operations into structures. And if the relational operation is not considered as having a value of being. Substantialism forces us to think the group as anterior to the individual or the individual as anterior to the group, which is how psychologism and sociologism arise as two substantialisms on different levels, that of the molecular or the molar. The choice of an intermediate micro-sociological or macro-psychical dimension cannot resolve the problem, since it is not founded on the choice of a dimension that is adequate to a particular phenomenon that would be intermediate between the social and the psychical. There is no psychosociological domain that would be the domain of restricted groups. This privileged aspect of certain restricted groups only stems from the fact that successive crises of individuation, the outbursts of functional structurations through which they pass, are more visible and can can be more easily studied. But what these phenomena, or sorry, but these phenomena are the same as in larger groups, and they introduce the same dynamic and structural rapports. Only the types of mediation between individuals are more complex since they use modes of transmission and of action that imply a delay and are exempt from real presence. But this development of networks of communication and of authority does not have an essence apart from macro-social phenomena insofar as they are social in their rapport to what can be called the individual being. The rapport of the individual to the group is always the same in its foundation. It depends on the simultaneous individuation of individual beings and of the group. It is presence. Right. So this this is sort of what he's been leading up to for the whole um, chapter so far is um, this notion, uh, this criticism of uh, psychologism and sociologism as two um, different substantialisms. Uh, and again, this is what we've seen throughout the book. Um, his criticism of substantialism in general, um, he uh, he's going to oppose to this substantialism uh, uh, a doctrine according to which there is this operational reality um, which has the value of being, uh, and and so he he um, he doesn't want to say that we're we're going to take the um, like the middle level between the sociological and the psychological as our basis um, and, and talk about small groups as like the, the most fundamental case where instead um, um, small groups are, are not any different from big groups. Uh, it's just that we, um, we have more, uh, an easier time um, an easier time studying small groups in in the way that re is required to um, to um, grasp these um, uh, structurations uh, and um, these crises of individuation. So you can think about like um, when when you look at um, uh, historical. A historical text of some kind um it's much easier to um to take like say the biography of one person or or um a small group of people and talk about um the the different crises of individuation that they, that they went through or the different um uh 
structuring um, events that happened in, in their life or, or in the life of that group, as opposed to um, when you want to talk about uh, a country as a whole or a, a large group of some kind, um, it's, it's much more difficult to, um, to say like this, this was a, um, a structuring event and this was a, a crisis of individuation that this whole group went through. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's just in relation to knowledge that there's a difference, uh, a relative difference between um, the large and small groups. So it's not the case that we start from this intermediate level of the small group and then, um, uh, and then um, sort of define the, the psychological and the sociological in, in those terms. Right, and Angus has um, posted in the chat here. Uh, yeah, so this mutual convert convertibility of structure and operation is what he calls allegmatics, um, this sort of strange term that he introduces. Um, but so this is what we've seen throughout the text. Um, this convertibility of structure and operation is just this um, genetic approach to structuring. Uh, so whenever we have something like a structure, we always want to see um, what is the, the genesis of that structure uh, and, and how that structure um, comes, in, comes into being, as opposed to starting from a structure as given um, and, and sort of uh, deriving other phenomena from that structure. It's an intersection, I think, of culture and the uh, interpersonal communication uh, in this in this section too, uh, that cultural like groups have uh, very empirical differences or very empirical qualifying things, and they can incorporate one another. But the personal scale, it's like more of a sorry that was a, that was an annoying way to say that. But on the interpersonal scale, uh, you know, it is more. Um, uh, it's less empirical, right? Uh, it's kind of like uh, um, I would just say, like uh, you know, that you can look at it from like the the perspective of is this uh, like you know it's something it's like things that have already been put into place, like media, like common now, like interests uh, or like the way that our families you know, raised us, um, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, maybe I, uh, because I, I don't, I just, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a constant effort that the uh, anthropologist makes to, uh, make these attributions of people, um, based on what is really an ethnographic thing. Um, without like coming out uh, the situation with a a purely ethnocentric perspective, and I think that when you going when when you go in when the anthropologist goes into it, then there's like an empirical assessment. They have a different language. I need to learn that you know you, you must learn the language in order to communicate with them in an effective way, and this works socially like on a smaller on a social scale where you know you may need to learn a certain kind of slang to be able to get down with a certain group of people or something like that 
Um, and then uh, once you're in that, once you are in that, it stops being empirical. It's not an empirical assessment anymore. And so then you have these way more diverse interactions that happen between the persons. Because it's like, oh, yeah, did you see the way the Korean baseball team did this week, you know? Something like that. And they, like, you know, it's completely, it's a, it's a there's like a, it's a more intimate. Am I, uh, am I, am I making wild attributions here? I think that that's kind of what he's getting at is kind of like this ethnocentric uh perspective yeah i think that's connected to what he's talking about here when like uh in anthropology we there's this notion of uh participant observation um so the idea is that you um you study a group of people not by sort of looking at them from the outside and and sort of analyzing their behavior as an outsider but instead you you have to the only way to actually understand a group is to become in some sense a member of that group and you have to there's a sort of um uh balancing act i guess you have to do where you you have to sort of retain some sort of exterior perspective while at the same time grasping that society or that group from within um and uh you know this this of course developed in anthropology as a a, a, a colonial enterprise where you had anthropologists from europe in particular being sent to uh, Africa or Asia or, or someplace to understand the natives um, for the purposes of, of colonization. But then in anthropology today, there's more of, uh, uh, it's applied, uh, this, this method of uh, participant observation is applied to, um, to uh, Western societies as well. So you, you, you might study like a, I don't know, like say punk subculture or whatever, some subculture, um, uh, you you pick uh, a group that you want to study and you have to sort of become a member of that group in some sense. You have to become accepted as a member of that group before you can even start um, uh, explaining uh, or, or before explanation even, but to understand, to, to just grasp the meanings of uh, uh, what their behavior and uh, expressions are, uh, and and so um, this this has to do with the interiority side of a group. So you you only you can only grasp uh, the you can only grasp the group as it exists for itself by becoming a member of that group, um, and uh, uh, so. This is a one of the parts or one of the aspects of uh, of method that Simondo was talking about here. Um, so you can't um, we can't um, we can't just sort of look at groups from outside and like study their properties from from outside. We have to uh, and th and this is what makes it so much harder to study um, large groups uh, or or. Uh, groups like a nation or something like that like it's hard to um, become a member of a nation like there's you know all sorts of legal procedures and immigration and and all that stuff that you have to go through to actually become a member of a nation um, as opposed to you know uh, becoming a becoming a member of uh, a certain subculture all you have to do is sort of uh, 
read the right magazines or um, go to the right shows or whatever it is um, that that group is involved in. Uh, and, and then you can sort of assimilate yourself into that group uh, and, and learn to become a member of that group. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's sort of what he's pointing to here is that difficulty of, uh, of becoming a member of some of these groups like a, a nation or, or, um, uh, or something uh, of similar scale. It's interesting to me what is the definite like the defining lines or boundaries of those cultures because when you speak to like this like magazine punk subgenre uh, whatever like you're speaking about like the 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 content of the culture and so like you know that's like what you're what you're having to objectively assess uh, rather than in a cult in a so like a sorry ma a macro social like a national scale it'd be like you know you should assess rather what language do they speak uh how do their families work uh, you know uh uh you know so that you don't embarrass yourself like in some social structure that you didn't know existed or like what media uh, do they do they do they digest? Yeah, I think that's it's super interesting, and I think that the that 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 uh, spectrum between the boundaries for cultures uh, speaks a lot to the uh, like uh, it's it's kind of like it's like. Uh, you know, if you if you learn if you learn a new language, you're going to have uh, new things that are available to you within that culture, right? That just you know, uh, like you know that like, but and then also though, uh, that's the only space that uh, you know the 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 boundaries of uh, of uh, subjectivity within that culture, right? Yeah, yeah, that's. Um... Yeah, that that's looking at a group from um, maybe a more external perspective. Um, but um, yeah, I don't want to get too um, bogged down on this section. So maybe we can go on to the next one where he's going to um, talk about um, the role of belief in in group formation. And so we'll see more on how this works. Uh, and Angus has volunteered to read the, the next section. Yeah, um, okay, I'll start now. Uh, subsection six, role of belief in the group individual. In the individual, belief is the latent set of references relative to which significations can be discovered. Belief is not the eminence of the group to the individual who would ignore such an eminence and would falsely believe to be uh, an autonomous individual when he would merely express the group. Belief is this collective individuation in the process of existing. It is presence to the other group individuals, the overlapping of personalities. Personalities can overlap through belief. More exactly, what is called collective belief is equivalent in the personality to what a belief would be in the individual. But this belief does not exist as belief. There is belief only when some force or obstacle obligates the individual to define and structure his belonging to the group as expressible in intelligible terms for individuals who are not members of the group. Belief supposes a foundation of belief, which is the personality 
formed in the group individuation. Belief develops in the individual as veritable belief when belonging to the group is called into question. Belief is veritably inter-individual. Inter it supposes a foundation that is not merely inter-individual, but veritably groupal. This is why the study of beliefs is a rather bad means of knowing man as a group member. The man who believes, the man who believes defends himself or he wants to change groups and is in disharmony with other individuals or with himself. Belief is granted a causal privilege in group belonging. Since belief is what is the easiest to manifest, project and consequently grasp and the usual methods of the knowledge of psychosocial reality. But belief is a phenomenon of the dissociation or alteration of groups, uh, not a basis of their existence. It has a provisional value of compensation, consolidation, or reparation rather than a fundamental signification relative to the genesis of the group and to the mode of existence of individuals in the group. Perhaps one could distinguish in this sense between myth, collective belief, and opinion, which would be individual belief. But myths and opinions correspond in symbolic pairs. When the group elaborates myths, group individuals express corresponding opinions. Myths are the geometrical sites of opinions. Between myth and opinion, there is merely a difference relative to the mode of inherence. Opinion is what can be expressed relative to a precise exterior case. It is the norm of a defined and localized judgment concerning a precise matter. Myth is an indefinite reserve of possible judgments. It has the value of a paradigm and is turned towards group interiority rather than toward beings exterior to judging relative to group norms. Myth represents the group and the personality in its internal consistency, whereas opinions are already diversified indefinite, objectivated situations that are separate from one another. Myths and opinions are the dynamic structural extension of the operations of group individuation into situations within which this individuation is no longer actual, possible, or able to be reactivated. Opinion is born by the individual, and it manifests in situations where the individual is no longer in the group, although he is of the group and tends to act as belonging to it. Opinion allows the individual to confront other individuals that belong to the exteriority group, all while maintaining his relation to the interiority group and allowing this confrontation to occur as a confrontation with the exteriority group. Myth, on the contrary, would be the shared side of opinions that obey a systematics of group interiority. And this is why myth cannot circulate perfectly in its pure form except in the interiority group. It supposes a logic of participation and a certain number of basic evidences that are part of the group individuation. It seems a lot like the distinction between uh, the virtual body and the actual body uh, at the end of the last chapter. It seems like the, the myth is sort of um, the future which can be actualized. I can't remember how we put it exactly. Uh, something, something about the myth being a reservoir of possibility and then the an opinion is something that it's only a signification that has already been formed after the encounter with an obstacle yeah i think that's right um 
I think, uh, yeah, I'll just mention one translation point here before I get into interpretation. There's um, in the the first paragraph on 336, um, towards the end, um, so there's, uh, he says, in the translation, it says, it has the value of a paradigm and is turned toward group interiority rather than toward beings exterior to judging relative to group norms. It, it should be, instead of exterior to judging, it should be um, toward exterior beings to be judged um, relative to group norms. That it, it makes a lot more sense that way. Um, yeah, just one bit, uh, a bit of a mistake in the translation there. Um, but yeah, so here he's talking about um, the extent to which we can study groups in, in relation to uh, beliefs, or the, the extent to which we can use beliefs as um, a, a defining principle of a group. Um, and for Simon Don, belief is a, a secondary phenomenon. It's not um, fundamental to group belonging. Um, and um, he, he considers uh, beliefs uh, a, a pretty poor way of uh, defining a group or of determining group membership. Um, and I think I think here we can um, we can think of um, a certain liberalism, I guess, um, that takes belief to be the the sort of key principle of uh, group belonging. Uh, so you see, um, um, like one of the ones that you see all the time is um, when people talk about whether a certain politician believes in climate change or not, um, uh, it doesn't really matter um, what they believe in. What matters is what they actually do. Um, and, and so whether a politician like expresses their belief in climate change or not is kind of not really relevant in terms of like what their um, group belonging in relation to climate change is, uh, um, and and so there's a certain um, a certain approach to politics that takes politics to be um, primarily about whether people believe certain things or not, uh, and and takes beliefs to be the the primary. Um, uh, site of political belonging, uh, and and for Simon Don, this is like a completely backwards way of uh, of taking um, social group uh, formation, uh, and I think this is a um, a pretty interesting suggestion. He doesn't really um, develop this very much, but the idea that um, belief is a sort of defensive structure. It's it's only when uh, a belief. It's only when a group membership is challenged in some way, or or there's some sort of um, uh, alternative that appears, that you have something like a belief that uh, that forms. Uh, so, uh, and you can see this in relation with um, religion as well. Like, uh, as long as you have a social group that um, that has a uh, one religion, then religion as such, or the the doctrine of that religion doesn't need to be systematized and, and presented as a belief system. Um, it's only when 
there's an alternative when you could belong to a different religion that you um, that you get something like religion as a set of beliefs, um, like I believe in X and this other person believes in Y. Um, uh, so it's only when um, there's like an alternative group belonging is, uh, is appears as a possibility that uh, you belonging to a group is expressed in the form of having certain beliefs. Um, so I think that's a, a really interesting suggestion and uh, something that you know could be developed a lot further. I think. Um, yeah, and, and Angus has has pointed pointed out here, here in the chat about how this ties back in with this notion of um, empirical subjectivity as a set of resolved problems. Um, so yeah, uh, you would see the uh, formation of belief as uh, um, a sort of um, uh, a sort of um, resolution of a certain set of problems. Um, uh, yeah, we're, we're not going to be able to finish the chapter today. That's fine. Um, we only have uh, about five minutes left. Uh, but we'll just um, finish this subsection, I think, and then we'll, we'll pick up from there next time. Uh, but um, the other thing I was going to talk about is, yeah, there's opposition between myth and opinion. Um, so he he gives myth and opinion as two um, alternate forms of belief. Uh, so he, he gives this um, a sort of qualified um, uh, acceptance. So he says that we can, we, can, um, we can take myth and opinion as two um, different forms of belief. So myth would be a collective belief and then opinion would be a personal belief, but uh, we can only do so if we, um, if we at the same time treat myth and opinion as um, two complementary realities so that individuals have the opinions that correspond to the myths of their group and uh, myths uh, correspond to the opinions of the members of that group. Uh, so there's a, a sort of mutual um, conditioning of myth and opinion. Uh, so it's not just the case that um, individuals have these sets of opinions uh, and then happen to sort of sort themselves into groups of people that have the same opinions or something along those lines. Uh, instead, you have um, uh, the formation of an individual's opinions uh, through their belonging to a certain group. Uh, and I think this is, is borne out empirically as well. Like if you look at um, uh, uh, you know, religious affiliation or political affiliation or, or other sorts of groupings, um, people uh, uh, take on the positions of the groups that they belong to. They, they're sort of raised into a certain group uh, and then they tend to adopt the, the opinions that go along with being a member of that group with, you know, a, a range of variation, of course. Um, and then you have like outliers who um, reject the the religious or political or whatever groups that they were raised in, and uh, adopt a completely different set of um, of opinions. Um, but for the most part, people um, uh, sort of uh, adopt the opinions or or develop the opinions that 
um, correspond to the myths of the group that they belong to. Right. Um, so yeah, we're pretty much at time, uh, and we're at a, a subsection break now. So I would suggest that we stop here, and uh, the next subsection is a bit longer as well. So we we wouldn't have time to finish that today. So let's yeah, let's stop here, um, and then we'll pick up from subsection seven next time, and and go on to the next chapter.